Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I want to greet you all on this blessed day, the greatest day of our salvation. And I am aware that it's a very long day and we have many readings and oftentimes we are unable to capture the depth of all of the readings uh, because the day goes by so quickly. So I just want to pause here for a short while to take a rest uh, and to go over uh, exactly where we are in the account of our Lord's passion uh, and his crucifixion. Uh, so the readings today, they pick up at the point uh, after which our Lord is arrested and he is seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we remember that when Judas brought the chief priests and the soldiers to arrest our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord said to them something important. He said, this is your hour, the power of darkness. You remember that many times throughout his ministry, our Lord's enemies wanted to seize him. They wanted to stone him. Uh, at times they wanted to throw him off of a cliff or otherwise kill him. But they could <coughs> not touch him because God did not will. His hour had not yet come. If they, had, if they were successful early on in his ministry, then the prophecies concerning his sacrifice would not have come to pass. So their hour had not yet come. And we remember that our Lord himself declared that no one would take his life away from him, but rather he would lay it down of his own will. And so when our Lord says to his enemies, this is your hour, the power of darkness, this was the hour in which God gave a momentary triumph to the powers of darkness, a moment in which they thought they achieved a victory. And this is a good reminder for us even in our lives that the hands of the wicked are bound and restrained until God permits them to work. And even then, God permits only <coughs> what, we can, what we can tolerate for the sake of our salvation. Our Lord was then bound by the soldiers because Judas had given old orders that he should be held fast. And the fact that our Lord was bound, he was tied up, of course, brings to mind how Abraham tied his son Isaac as he prepared to offer his son to God as a sacrifice. The Lord was then led away from the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't dragged against his will. Because of his willing submission, uh, he was simply led away. And this was foretold by the holy prophet Isaiah, who said that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. So our Lord was not dragged away, but he went willingly uh, with the soldiers and the priests. And the soldiers and priests ultimately take our Lord to Caiaphas, who is the high priest at that time. In those days, the Jews elected a new high priest every year. And so now we have this scene where our Lord is led to Caiaphas, the high priest for that year. And you have our Lord, who is the eternal high priest, standing before a temporary high priest in order to be judged by him. And we see here the great humility of our Savior. Caiaphas convened a nighttime meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, you remember, was a council of Jewish priests and leaders. And this meeting was convened at nighttime, even though it was illegal to do so, 
but it was convened at nighttime simply to try our Lord. And this was the first trial, the trial by the Jews. It was a religious trial. And it's clear from this trial, as we heard in the readings, that the Sanhedrin had already determined that Christ should die before this trial even began. The purpose of this trial was not to weigh evidence, it was not to hear anything new, but rather to justify the action that they had already decided upon. And so the high priest's first question to our Lord was about his doctrine, his teaching, and his disciples. The council wanted to trick our Lord into providing an answer that suited their desire to put him to death, but instead our Lord, as we heard, answered them with great wisdom and told them, everything I said, everything I didn't, was done in public. If you want to know what I taught, speak to all of the people that have heard what I said. Everything I did was public. And so he put to shame the Sanhedrin by this answer. And when our Lord answered the high priest in this way, this, this majestic way that put them to shame, one of the servants of the high priest who stood nearby struck him with the palm of his hand and said, Is this how you answer the high priest? We don't know the identity of this man, but we do know that this was the first blow delivered to the body of our Savior. It was a blow delivered by someone who didn't really listen to the content of our Lord's answer, but instead he chose to criticize the way our Lord answered and to punish it with violence. And isn't this true even today? People who can't criticize Christ or Christianity on the merits of what Christ actually said and did and what our faith is about, they oftentimes resort to violence and ignorance. And we see that here very clearly by the servant of the high priest who struck our Lord. Our Lord responded to this man who struck him with all meekness and said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness to the evil. But if I have spoken well, then why do you strike me? With one word, our Lord could, send, could have sent this man to Hades. But instead, he answered meekly, because he came to be stricken for our sins and bruised for our iniquities, as the holy Isaiah prophesied. And when this line of questioning failed, when they weren't able to achieve their end by this line of questioning, the Sanhedrin chose another course of action. They summoned false witnesses to testify against our Lord. And these witnesses ended up contradicting each other, but the council didn't care. They were more anxious to put him to death, so they listened to these witnesses contradict each other. One of them came and said, we heard him say, I will, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And of course, this is not what our Lord said. This was a false testimony, because our Lord did not say that he would destroy anything. Instead, he said, you destroy this temple. He wasn't speaking, of course, about the physical temple at Jerusalem, but he was speaking about the temple which is his body. And he said to them, you destroy this temple which is my body, and I will raise it after three days. And of course, this is what happened in our Lord's glorious resurrection. 
but we see that the false witnesses, they changed the content of what our Lord said, and they contradicted each other. Our Lord remained silent in the face of this contradicting testimony, and Caiaphas was getting annoyed at how poorly the whole thing was going. So finally he asked Christ. He spoke in that moment as the high priest, and he said to Christ, I put you under oath. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. So when everything else failed, the high priest used his authority to say, I ask you, I adjure you, tell us plainly or not, are you Christ, the Son of God? We notice that Caiaphas didn't refer to any of the false testimony because no one could believe this false testimony, nor did he speak about Christ's doctrine or how Christ answered before because all of those things didn't work. But instead, he wanted to cut to the chase and he ordered Christ to answer this most important question under oath. And so our blessed Lord opened his mouth and he uttered two words. I am, I am. He answered with majestic dignity and confirmed that he was the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we cannot help but notice that our Lord, he responded with the words, I am. Those words, of course, being the name of God that was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so whenever our Lord uses the name or the words, I am, it is a reference to the fact that he is the God who spoke to Moses, that he is divine and human. And so we see that our Lord responded clearly that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And because of this, the first trial, the religious trial, they convicted him of blasphemy. So now you have the first trial and the charge is blasphemy. But there is a problem. The problem is that the Sanhedrin, the Jews, they want to put Christ to death. But they, as Jews, have no right to do so because they are living as a conquered people under the Romans. They don't have the power to put anyone to death. And even if they didn't, they couldn't do so in this day because this was the day of the Passover. And so they had no power to put our Lord to death. So now they had to find a way to convict Christ in the civil court, the Roman court. And this is where the second trial begins, the trial under Pontius Pilate. Now usually, any of you who know anything about law, you know that when you have a lower court, that passes sentence and then it goes to a higher court, usually the sentence carries, it stays the same, right? You have one sentence and it goes up to the higher court with the exact same sentence. And so it was expected for the Jews that when they went to Pilate for the civil trial, that exactly the same charge would be filed, which was blasphemy. But they don't offer this, this charge before Pilate. And the reason, as we're going to see, is because the Jews knew that Pilate would not accept this as a charge to convict Christ and put him to death. The Jews had two options. Either 
they could present to Pilate the charge and the conviction that they had already handed down in the religious court, or they could try to open a new trial in the civil court. And they chose the second because they knew that Pilate would not accept blasphemy as a legitimate charge and put Christ to death. They knew that they had their God and Pilate had his own gods. And since this was a purely religious charge, Pilate might have sent it back to them and then they wouldn't have been able to achieve their aim, which was putting Christ to death. And so they bring a charge before Pontius Pilate. We should say a few words about Pontius Pilate because he is a very interesting figure in the life of our Savior. He was the sixth Roman procurator of Judea since the Romans conquered Judea. And he had his office for about 10 years uh, during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. And he had many problems with the Jews. Uh, first of all, he was oftentimes uh, very uh, violent with the Jews. Uh, he had a heavy hand with them, and so the people of Jerusalem despised him. But more than this, secondly, he was the procurator who earlier on, before the trial of our Savior, he had smuggled uh, the emblems of the Roman emperor and he tried to place them inside the temple at Jerusalem. And of course, this was something considered sacrilegious to the Jews. How could you put the image of the emperor inside the temple? And it caused a great uprising, and the Jews complained to the emperor. And Pilate told them, if you complain, I will kill all of you. And they gave their necks to Pilate and said, we don't care. We're going to complain to the emperor. And it was actually Herod who had a role in complaining to the emperor about this action. And this is why Herod and Pilate were not on good terms. This is why, until the trial of our Lord, they hated each other. Because Herod had acted against Pilate in this uprising. And so a complaint was made to the emperor and the emblem of the emperor was finally removed from the temple. And Pilate was defeated. Uh, in this action and it led to a lot of friction between him and Herod and him and the Jews as well and there were other things that Pilate did he took money from the Jewish treasury to build an aqueduct and there were many uprisings uh, and this is where we get some context about for example Barabbas Barabbas who was in prison who was released instead of Christ uh, because he had led an uprising and so this is a little bit about Pontius Pilate. So now we have the members of the Sanhedrin, the priests, the elders, and the scribes. They bring Christ to Pilate, and they ask him for the death sentence. Remember, for the Jews, they had already convicted Christ for blasphemy. And now they come to Pilate because they want to open a new charge because they know Pilate will not accept the first one. So they come to the Praetorium. The Praetorium is the Latin word basically for the house of the governor. It is the house of Pontius Pilate. And they know they cannot enter the Praetorium because the Jews at that time were very strict about their law and they knew that they could not enter the threshold of the house of a Gentile. And so they refused to go in, so Pilate came out 
and he met with them outside of the praetorium. And he asked them very clearly, what charge do you bring against this man? And so the Jews tried firstly to invite Pilate to trust the judgment that they had already pronounced. Uh, they tell him, we would not have brought him to you if he had not been a malefactor, an evildoer. But nothing was said about the blasphemy. So the Jews tried firstly to get Pilate just to accept the fact that he should trust them, that they had already convicted Christ, and he should just go and sentence him to death without more than this. But Pilate, of course, was more savvy than this. And so he asks him for further clarification. And so they tell him, we have discovered that this man is subverting the loyalty of our people. He forbids the payment of tribute to Caesar, and he calls himself the king. So now they offer these new charges about Christ. Notice there's no word about blasphemy. The charge was now different. Christ was unpatriotic. Christ was uh, guilty of sedition. He was telling people not to pay any tribute to Caesar. He was leading the people in an uprising, and he was claiming that he was a king instead of Caesar. Of course, every word of this was a lie, because if Christ had been the ringleader of any kind of seditious organization, there would have been signs of an insurrection connected with his name, and Pilate would have heard about this long time ago. But, of course, there was no truth to this charge. And Pilate suspected that these charges were trumped up, and so he asked our Savior, once our Lord was inside the praetorium, he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? This was the charge. The charge was that he was a king. And Pilate knew that if Christ was setting himself up as a rival king to the Romans, the Gentiles would be there to testify against him. So he asked him, are you a king of the Jews? He knew there was no truth to the charge that Christ was setting himself up as a rival king to the emperor, because then there would be Gentiles who would say this, but only Jews had brought Christ. So he asked them, are, do, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate wanted a direct answer, but our Lord tells him, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom were one that belonged to this world, my servants would be fighting to prevent my falling into the hands of the Jews, but no. My kingdom does not take its origin here. So Pilate was now put at ease. He knew that Christ was not a challenge to Roman rule, and he was convinced by our Lord's words that he was not claiming to be the king of the Jews on earth uh, in that sense either. And the quiet and dignified uh, bearing of Christ before Pilate, uh, it seems to have softened a pilot a little bit because now he asked simply, are you a king? Are you a king? Um, our Lord responded and said to him, with your own lips you said that I am a king. What I was born for, what I came into the world for, is to bear witness of the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to my voice. 
And so we see here something very interesting and something beautiful. All, of, all throughout our Lord's life, he spoke of himself as coming into the world. He said, I came into the world. But he actually never spoke of being born until the time he spoke to Pontius Pilate. Being born of a woman is one thing, and coming into the world is another. But here, when our Lord is asked, are you a king, he references being born of a woman to show that he is truly man. And he references coming into the world to show that he is truly divine. Because one who was born of a woman is, of course, human. But one who comes into the world is one who is not of the world. So Christ confirms his humanity and his divinity when he is asked by Pilate, Are you a king? When he answers Pilate, Pilate responds to him and asks him, What is truth? What is truth? Our Lord tells him that everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. And those who hear his voice come to the light. And so if the um, impulse toward truth was in Pilate, he would know that Christ himself was truth. And if it was not in Pilate, then he would ultimately sentence Christ to death. Pilate now, when he has this dialogue with our Savior, he begins the first of several attempts to try to rescue Christ, such as a declaration of his innocence, and then a choice between two prisoners to release, and then a scourging, and then an appeal to the sympathy of the Jews, and then even changing uh, the judges, changing the trial and sending the trial to Herod so that Christ could be tried not by Pilate, but instead by Herod. And so we see that he tells them, I find no fault with him. If there was no fault in Christ, then Pilate should have released our Lord. But the Sanhedrin, when they heard this, they became more violent in their accusation that he was a revolutionary. And he, they told him, he rouses sedition among the people. He has gone around the whole of Judea preaching, beginning in Galilee and ending here. So Pilate questions Christ, and he tells them, I find no fault in him. And he should have released him at this point. But the Jews clamored more so, and they want Pilate to do something. And when the Jews mentioned that he was preaching beginning in Galilee, this is when Pilate sees his opportunity. He sees an escape from having to judge Christ. As the Sanhedrin had changed the charge from blasphemy to sedition, so now Pilate would change the court from himself, from the Roman court, to the one who had power in Galilee, and that was Herod, the king of the Jews at the time, who was already in Jerusalem for the Passover season. Even though Herod and Pilate were enemies, Pilate had no problem sending Christ away to Herod because he wanted to shift the responsibility of acquitting or condemning Christ to Herod. And so our Lord is now sent to Herod. And this Herod was Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, the one who caused all of the male children under two years of age to be murdered in Bethlehem. Herod's family was Idumean, that is to say they were from 
the descendants of Esau, the father of all of uh, the Edomites. Uh, so they were actually not purely Jewish in their race, but through political maneuvering, they arranged to become the kings of the Jews. And we see that Herod Antipas was also the uncle of Herod Agrippa, the one who killed the first martyr, St. James the Apostle, and the one who would have killed St. Peter if St. Peter had not been miraculously delivered from prison. Uh, he was also the same Herod who had murdered uh, St. John the Baptist because John condemned him for divorcing his wife and living with his brother's wife. And we know from tradition that, and from the scripture as well, that Herod had a very uneasy conscience, not only because he had slain the forerunner of Christ, St. John the Baptist, but because he believed that Christ was St. John the Baptist who came back from the dead and was haunting his soul. And so when our Lord was brought to Herod, Herod was overjoyed at seeing Jesus. For a long time he had been eager to have sight of him because he had heard so much of him, and now he hoped to witness some miracle of his. The Savior, who had never worked a miracle for himself, of course would not, would not work a miracle in order to release himself. But this frivolous king of the Jews, the one who regarded the prisoner uh, really as more of someone who might entertain him, he looked for the thrill of a miracle in that moment. Herod was a very worldly man. He didn't believe in the afterlife. And so he was a man who very much lived in the moment. So he wanted to see a miracle to amuse himself. But our Lord refused to answer him. Our Lord refused to speak to him. And the reason for this, as the fathers teach us, is because Herod's conscience was already dead. So our Lord spoke not a word to him because he was already dead on the inside. When Herod sees that our Lord is unwilling to speak to him, he has his soldiers begin to mock Christ. They begin to put on him a robe. <coughs> they put on Christ a white robe. And this white robe, of course, is significant uh, this is the robe that was worn by people who came for public office in Rome. It was called in Latin the toga candida. And this is the, where we get the word candidate from, a candidate for office. They wore this white robe. And so Herod mocked Christ and put on him this white robe. Um, and they reviled him. Uh, and they had their fun with him when he refused to perform a miracle so that he might amuse them. And so after this trial uh, under Herod, if we can call it that, we see that Herod <laughs> sends Christ back to Pilate. But there is something that happens as a result of this trial. Herod and Pilate, because of this trial, because of their cooperation together in examining Christ, they become united once more. And the enmity that existed between them is now gone. And this is the way of the world, isn't it? Sometimes people who hate each other can unite in their hatred towards God. We see this, for example, in the history of the world. 
Nazism and communism were two very different political systems that were um, uh, united in hating each other. But when the time came for them to hate Christianity, they were able to unite in their common hatred of God. And so we see the same thing happening today. Herod and Pilate are not on good terms before the trial of Christ, but afterwards they are once again reconciled and they are united. And then our Lord is sent back to Pilate for the second trial before Pilate. So now he's had the religious trial under the Sanhedrin, and that's where he was convicted of blasphemy for affirming that he is the Son of God. Then he has the first trial under Pontius Pilate, where he is asked whether he is a king, and our Lord affirms that he is a king, not of the world, but a king uh, who has his kingdom in heaven. And then Pilate wants to release him because he sees no fault in him. And the Jews mention Galilee. So then he has the next trial under Herod, the king of the Jews. And now he comes back for the second trial under Pontius Pilate. Pilate saw the mom coming back to him with our Lord Savior. And he returns and tells the people I examined him in your presence and I couldn't find any substance in any of the charges that you bring against him, nor could Herod. When I referred you to him, it is plain he has done nothing which deserves death. And so Pilate here, he tells them once again, there is nothing in him that deserves death. And he tries to get the Jews to release our Lord, or at the very least, uh, not to pursue the death penalty, not to pursue crucifixion. When this doesn't work, Pilate, who was very clever, he sought to confuse the Jews by asking them to choose a prisoner that they might have released to them. This was a tradition among uh, the Jews under Roman occupation that they could choose one prisoner to be set free during these days. And Pilate was very clever. He didn't choose any prisoner. He chose Barabbas. Barabbas. Why did he choose Barabbas? Because Barabbas was convicted for the very same charge that the Jews brought against Christ. The Jews said about Christ, he's a revolutionary. He is teaching people not to follow Caesar. He is not paying tribute to Caesar. He is leading insurrection and sedition. Well, Bar Barabbas was convicted of this. And so Pilate thought, if I put these two prisoners, one of them was convicted of this exact crime, and the other one, you're telling me that he is guilty, but so far neither I nor Herod have found anything in him that is worthy of death. Well, hopefully, in his mind, the Jews would choose Barabbas. They would choose Christ and let him go. So Barabbas comes from his dark prison and he stands next to the Lord of glory and Pilate steps forward and addresses the mob and says, whom shall I release, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate thought that by doing this, he was offering them a democratic choice. But of course, it was only the semblance of democracy. 
Think about the people to whom Pilate addressed this question, and then think about the question itself. The people themselves were not inclined to put our Lord to death. The people themselves didn't want to. But when Pilate asked this question, certain leaders of the people, they roused all of the people and they said, ask for Barabbas. There's always a group that is able to use uh, what we might call um, uh, today, um, actually the word escapes me, but um, marketing, advertising, they're able, a group of a few, they use their power in, in being able to convince people um, that they should choose this or that. And so a small group convinced the mom that they should choose Barabbas. And so Pilate asked them, who shall I release? And the people say, Barabbas. And Pilate at this point cannot believe his ears. Barabbas probably couldn't believe his ears at this point either. Was he about to be released? He had committed murder. He had led insurrection. He had led revolt. And now he was about to be released. And we can imagine Barabbas looking at our Lord up and down, but finally not able to gaze at him. He only looked down towards the ground because he could see that Christ was truly sorry for him that he was getting his freedom because, of course, the Lord knew that he would use his freedom for more wrongdoing. And so we see that the crowd, they ask for Barabbas. And this is a lesson to us, brothers and sisters, that the majority is not always right. The majority is not always right. The majority is right when it comes to things that are relative. But the majority is not always right in the absolute. Majority does not determine what the truth is. We can use the majority to determine an election for public office, but not truth, not justice. Beauty or who we want to lead the nation, that's a matter of taste. But truth is tasteless. Right is right if no one is right. And wrong is wrong if everyone is wrong. And this is an important lesson that we learn from the mobs who called for Barabbas today. Because even today, there is the same mob rule, the same chosen few people who use their power and influence to get the masses to believe certain things, to follow after certain things. But this is not how truth is determined. Truth is the truth whether the majority believes in it or not. And so we see here that Barabbas actually, if you think about it, is the first man who was saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Barabbas is the first man who was saved by the sacrifice of Christ. And this was a symbol that by Christ's death, men were to be made free. This is what happened every Passover when a lamb was substituted for the people and the lamb went to death for the atonement of the people's sins. The Savior suffers, but the criminals go free. That is what today is about. The Savior suffered, but we 
who are guilty of sin, we who might be considered criminals in the sense that we oftentimes choose sin, we are the ones who go free. And this is what the Passover was about, and this is what our Lord did to fulfill the Passover on this great day of Holy Friday. And so we see the Savior would not be released, but the sinner would. Pilate, now he's tried several things to release Christ. He's told the Jews more than, on more than one occasion that he finds no fault with Christ, but that hasn't worked. He has sent Christ to Herod, hoping that Herod might acquit him or at least be the one to condemn him, but that didn't work. Herod also found no charge uh, in Christ that is worthy of death. And so, and now, and Pilate has also now given them a choice, but that didn't work. So what does Pilate now resort to? He tells the people, I will scourge him, and then I will set him free. Scourging was always inflicted by the Romans before crucifixion, but this scourging was not supposed to be that kind of punishment. This scourging was, a diff was for a different purpose. Pilate wanted Christ to be scourged, and then to show Christ's scourge to the people so that he might arouse their sympathy and then they might release him. That was what Pilate wanted. And so Pilate ordered that our Lord be scourged. And we see that after our Lord's flesh was opened with these violent stripes, and we know there are many uh, uh, resources where you can read about how the Romans scourged their prisoners, uh, exactly how painful that process was. It's depicted in the Passion of the Christ. Um, I've spoken about it in previous years, so I won't speak about it again today. But after they open his holy flesh with these violent stripes, the Roman soldiers put on a purple robe, which sticks to his bleeding body and the open wounds on his body. And then they plaited a crown of thorns, which they placed on his head, you know, if one of these thorns uh, pierced our finger or one of the soldier's fingers, they probably would have cursed because of the pain. But now a whole crown of these thorns is made and it crowns the brow of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the soldiers mock him and they put a reed in his hand after they beat him on the head with the crown of thorns already on it. And then they pretended to kneel in front of him in feigned adoration. And their actions were prophesied about by Isaiah in the Suffering Servant Songs when he says, Our weakness, and it was he who carried the weight of it. Our miseries, and it was he who bore them. A leper, so we thought of him. A man God had smitten and brought low. And all the while it was for our sins. He was wounded, it was our guilt. Crushed down, on him the punishment fell that brought us peace. By his bruises we were healed. And so we see that everything that was prophesied about our Savior is coming to pass. And after the scourging, Pilate brought the bleeding Christ before the mob and he told them, See, I am bringing him out to you now to show you that I cannot find any fault in him. Behold the man. So here, for 
yet another time, Pilate tries to convince the Jews that he has been punished enough and there is no charge for which he should be crucified. Behold the man. Here he is. Look at him, scourged, bleeding, humiliated. Look at him. But when the leaders of the people saw him, what did they say? They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate told them, you take him and crucify him. And the people said, we have our law, and by our law he ought to die for pretending to be the Son of God. We notice here something very interesting. Pilate says to the Jews, Behold the man. And the Jews respond, The Son of God. So here once more, we have an affirmation of our Lord's divine and human nature. Pilate said, Behold the man. And the Jews responded, The Son of God. Pilate told them he is innocent under Roman law, and the Jews answered he is guilty under Jewish law. And when Pilate heard them referring to the Son of God, he was more afraid than ever. And so he summoned our Lord to himself. He wanted to understand what is this they are saying, that he is the Son of God. He wondered at Christ with his majestic dignity standing before him, that he spoke no words in his own defense. He was shaken, and he was thinking perhaps Christ is a messenger from one of the gods. And so he called him inside to his judgment chamber and said to him, From where have you come? From where have you come? Pilate did not ask him, Who are you? He did not ask you, or did not ask him, Are you the Son of God? But said, From where did you come? Pilate knew that he had a Galilean origin, but that did not interest him because he already sent him to Herod, who was in Galilee and who was responsible for Galilee. But Pilate was asking him, from where are you? Because he thought perhaps he was something more than a man. If he was from heaven, he would not crucify him. And so he asked our Lord for his real origin. He already asked Christ six questions, but this was the most important question that Pilate would ask. But our Lord refused to answer this question because Pilate had already turned his back on truth. Pilate already had several opportunities to choose truth and to let our Lord go, but he did not. And so our Lord preserved a mysterious silence before the high priest, before the Sanhedrin, before Herod, before Pilate, and now for a second time before Pilate. And of course, again, continuing the theme, this silence was prophesied by Isaiah. A victim, yet he himself bows to the stroke. No word comes from him. Sheep led away to the slaughterhouse, Lamb that stands dumb while it is shorn, no word from him. So we see that our Lord remains silent in front of Pilate because Pilate deserved no answer and therefore he received no answer. But at this moment, something very unique happened. Something 
that really never happened under any Roman trial. Claudia, the wife of Pilate, sent a message to her husband. Who is this Claudia? We should say a few words about her. Claudia was the youngest daughter of Julia, who was the daughter of Caesar Augustus. And Julia had been married uh, three times. She was married um, to one of the emperors, Tiberius, but she was unfortunately a loose woman. And she conceived Claudia to another man, a Roman soldier. And so she lived as an exile. And when Claudia was 13 years old, Julia sent her to be brought up by her husband, Tiberius. And when she was 16, Pilate, who was himself <coughs> not a noble, he met her and he fell in love with her. And he asked Tiberius, the emperor, for permission to marry her. And so Pontius Pilate married into the family of the Roman emperor. And this is why he had a political future, because he married into the family. Now, typically, Roman governors are forbidden to take their wives with them to the provinces. And most of the politicians were very happy about this, but not Pilate. He wanted his wife to be with him. And so he sent for Claudia after he had been in Jerusalem, in Judea for six years. And Claudia came and she was there living with him in Judea. And we can perhaps uh, guess that Claudia must have heard about Jesus before this. Uh, most likely she had dealt with Jews in her daily life and they brought news about him to her. She might have actually seen him uh, because the fortress of Antonia where she lived was very close to the temple where our Lord was often preaching. Uh, she might have even heard about his message because people said about him, no man ever spoke as this man. And so her soul was stirred by our Lord. And what's unique about Claudia sending this message to Pontius Pilate was that under Roman law, no woman was allowed to interfere in any process of law or even to offer a suggestion concerning legal procedure. What made Claudia's entrance into the scene more remarkable is that she sent this message to Pontius Pilate the very day he was deciding the most important case of his career, the only case for which he would be remembered, the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. To send a message to a judge during a trial under Roman law was punishable. It was a crime, but she did it anyway. And so we read in Matthew 27, and even as he sat on the judgment scene, his wife sent him a message, do not meddle with this innocent man. I dreamed today that I suffered much on his account. There's something beautiful in all of this. While the women of Israel were silent, <coughs> the Gentile woman, the heathen woman, bore witness to the innocence of Jesus. The Jewish woman said, crucify him, crucify him. But the Roman woman said, he is innocent, have nothing to do with him. And so we see that Claudia is remembered as the only woman who stood up for our Lord in the midst of these trials. 
We don't know what dream she had concerning uh, our Lord. Uh, but there have been writers throughout history who have tried to guess or they've, you know, uh, hypothesized what the dream was. One of these writers guessed that Claudia had a dream in which she heard voices in the tomb saying, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then later on, she saw Roman temples being converted into churches where the Christians would say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then, as the churches multiply, and that many would hear these voices saying, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We don't know what the dream really was about, but either way, we know that the woman was right and Pontius Pilate was wrong. Pilate, finding the prisoner silent, was angry, and he said, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and to set you free? He spoke of his power to release or to condemn. But of course, if Pilate really believed that our Lord was innocent, he should have let him go. But instead, he gave him over to the Jews. And he accepted their pleas that he might be crucified. And this is where we are now in the readings after uh, we've concluded the third hour. And now we start the sixth hour and we read about the actual uh, preparation for the crucifixion <coughs> and the crucifixion of our Lord. And glory be to God forever. Amen.